Brett, I don't think I was more excited to sit down with anybody that we've sat down with yet until we, we sat down with Lynn Fay. And so, I mean, he's been an absolute idol, um, an icon, however you want to say it, uh, the reason for me still being a chiropractic, I think the reason for all of us still being a chiropractic. And so uh, Lynn started MPI, he started this paradigm shift and uh, man, he told some great stories and uh, we even, <laughs> we got blown up a couple times by him, which is pretty amazing. So uh, what a cool sit down, huh? Yeah, I thought, I thought Lynn was amazing. He, uh, you know, he's the guy who basically took a lot of early bullets for, you know, a time in our profession when nobody was talking about a dynamic model. And I mean, his stories about literally the abuse he took from, from so many different people and to still have the perseverance to still push the model. And so he told us he was, uh, I think 81 and a half maybe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I mean, he's not, he is, he is just, you know, he's still seeing patients. He's still wanting to write books. He's still wanting to do all these different things. And we actually got to see him in his practice mm -hmm. and, uh, with his motion palpation station. I mean, it, it was a, as an authentic experience as, as we've had, I would say. Absolutely. Just an amazing thing. And so, uh, one of the things that, you know, Brett has been contemplating for years and now I kind of have a little small obsession with the two is the whole ipsilateral cervical spine move that he talks about and the, the motion restriction being there. And so, uh, I was the lucky recipient of an adjustment and, um, yeah, it, it felt good. Uh, I, I again, I don't, I don't know. What was your takeaway from our conversation? Well, I mean, I think like what Lynn talked about in his original book, which still holds absolutely true today was when we go to palpate, we want to take joints to end range. We want to spring them or check to see if they have springiness in all three planes of motion. And that was like one of his main early tenets. And so, you know, that means that you may be in the right region, but you haven't like checked all the different planes of motion. I still think that's a really, really important point. And then the thing that, you know, Lynn, Lynn and I have debated over the years is, you know, in the lower cervical spine, whether or not they really, they truly have an ipsilateral joint blockage or if that's actually more of a soft tissue blockage, how important is it? Lynn likes it for the sympathetic effect of the adjustment too. So do we want to, you know, manipulate those joints for this sympathetic effect? How long would that last? Those are all, you know, probably fair questions. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn's argument would be that the, the joints in that area are actually restricted into ipsilateral uh, motion and their hypermobile and contralateral motion would be Lynn's argument if he was sitting right here. I still, I can't say that I was swayed, but I'm always open for, you know, what, uh, you know. I'd be lying if I haven't been checking it this week, though. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so, it's got know. a def, when, when the blockage is there, I think this is, and this is more of like a Syriac's thought is, what is the blockage? Because it to me, even when it's blocked, it doesn't feel like a blocked joint. I'm feeling like I feel restriction, but I'm feeling like soft tissue restriction. And to his credit, James Syriax was the first one to start to talk about, you know, maybe we should be delineating the difference between what a soft tissue blockage feels like versus a joint. And then, you know, take it one step further. Should we be, be manipulating and uh, putting movement into joints that are already moving well in an attempt to try to get a soft tissue effect? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a that's a fair debate. That's a that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Something we talked about with semen. So in the neurology episode of our podcast, I think it was episode one, we asked him that exact question: Would you ever bang a joint to get the soft tissues relaxation? And he basically said yes, absolutely. So. I think that's still something that we're going to be debating over the years, and uh, I don't know that we'll ever have a definitive question or answer. 
Something to, something to think about though, what if a patient had tight suboccipitals, no joint blockage, and to have an effect on the, let's just say, the inferior oblique muscle to be specific, you have them, you're cranking them in range rotation on a patient who, you know, has got a little bit of joint hypermobility, loose connective tissue, and then you just, you know, you have like really increased a lot of risk there. So. Uh, maybe certain parts of the body that makes sense, but other parts of the body we need to we need to pay attention to for Mitig sure. Mitigate risk. So mitigate anyway, uh, what a cool uh, cool conversation with uh, Lynn. We uh, we filmed an entire basically him adjusting Brett and I his assessment and him talking through everything. And so uh, be on the lookout for that. But uh, enjoy this conversation. If you're an MPI you know uh, guru, this not, is a MPI, must listen. To. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, this is you, history. MPI reps and stuff like that. Uh, DM us on Instagram if you listen to this and then share it. I think more people need to hear Lynn talk and, and give him the credit that he, he did. And Lynn basically has not been on the podcast circuit. So, I mean, that's the other fun thing about it. I think like, you know, it's just good to hear Lynn in that format. We're used to Lynn, you know, like his, you know, video series, whatever it may be that he's doing, but rarely is he sitting down in a conversation like, like it was in this format. So I think this is a must listen to. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, enjoy it and uh, let us know how we're doing. All right. Alright everyone, welcome to our newest episode of the Clinical Savant Show. Uh, I'm Dr. Taylor Premier here with my co-host Brett Winchester and today we are sitting down with one of Brett and I's biggest mentors, uh, Dr. Lynn Fay. So Dr. Lynn Fay, uh, you've influenced me because you basically created the reason that I stuck with chiropractic and that's uh, MPI, Motion Palpation Institute. And so it's the reason that I found Brett, it's the reason that I, I found my passion for the chiropractic. And so uh, what a pleasure to sit down with you in your office uh, here in LA and uh, I mean I, I know Brett has told me so many good stories about you and getting to, to meet you and have lunch with you today has been a, a really just amazing so uh brett uh what talk, talk about lynn yeah i just think you know when we were talking about coming out to los angeles obviously you know one of the first people i think of is lynn fay so lynn fay by starting motion palpation institute is basically the reason i'm here like i without the without mpi there is no way that i'm here i think corey would say the same thing mark would say the same thing so when you look at this like the lineage that mpi's created and the downstream effect it's got to kind of make you proud to kind of see like like you know, the cascade of hundreds have <laughs> come up to me and said i would have quit chiropractic if i hadn't heard your lecture Right. Yep. Yeah. And I used to lecture for three hours at MPI every Saturday morning, and I would just be turning what they learned in college upside down. <laughs> so, Lynn, you're kind of you're given credit for basically introducing a dynamic model into chiropractic. Before we start getting into some of the nuances of what that actually means, can you can you kind of explain what the static model was, and then what the influence was with the dynamic model, and how that started to uh, create what you call the paradigm shift? Yeah, and. Uh, what I, I did when I went to chiropractic college, uh, everything was a bone out of place, and you had to have a line of drive that drove the bone north, south, east, west, uh, superior, inferior, lateral, or rotate it. And, uh, and you needed an x-ray to tell you that, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then uh, the next year, uh, all we needed to do was put our thumb on the sacrotuberous ligament 
and jigalette around a little bit and everything would line up above and uh, Logan listeners don't be offended <laughs> and then the next year we uh, found out that the only subluxation was the atlas and somehow or other you could spin it around by turning people on their side with a drop headpiece and toggle it and if you toggled to the anterior, posterior, superior, inferior, whatever you wanted to do, the bone would spin around and stop, right? And uh, then all nerves in the body, since they went through there, they would all get the blessing of your adjustment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so everything would be fine. So that was the static model it was called. Bone out of place, pinching a nerve, stopping life force from above down above people think above is from the atlas down but above is the universal intelligence that was expressing itself <clears throat> in the body as innate intelligence and it had to go past the atlas and uh, so if the atlas was pinching anything then uh, life force couldn't get the innate intelligence couldn't get to the, all the cells <laughs> in the body and things got really bad. So, you know, it was, uh, for anybody, I'd been prepared for uh, uh, chemical engineering. So I had a, an inkling about what science was about. And uh, I thought to myself, this is a religion. Uh, there's no way you could falsify it. So there was no way you could prove it right or wrong. So therefore, it was a belief system, and belief systems are religions, right? Or more like a cult, almost, even yeah, more so than a religion. That's right. And uh, so that's, uh, I was so wanted to be a chiropractor that I put up with all that. Because I had a, a miraculous healing myself that I knew wasn't caused by a bone being out of place. So I, I knew that my job on graduating was to find out how this really worked. Right? And my understanding of science at the time was that science could explain phenomena that had been observed where there was no explanation. So as long as you could observe something consistently, then there was a scientific reason for it. And as long as you knew how to do the experiments, then you could get to the scientific evidence. Right? Well, at the time, there was so little known about what we did that there was no research. There wasn't one PhD chiropractor in 1960, not one. Now there's 35, 40 in one university in southern Denmark. Uh, they're all over. Mm -hmm. So. We have access to research now that is starting to answer some of these questions that we have. Lynn, I think in the profession now, we're suffering from a lexicon issue on what we call the manipulative lesion. Yeah. So, you know, we've, even in your original book, we called it a subluxation complex. Even today at lunch, we've used the term blockage, restriction, yeah. you know, so what, what, what term do you like? What is the term that we should use moving forward for the contemporary chiropractor? Um, I'm assuming you don't like the term subluxation because I don't hear you use that term much. No. 
No, subluxation has the connotation of, of uh, palmerism, mm -hmm. and so, it, uh, and then the subluxation complex wasn't really anything. It was a, what's called a heuristic uh, model, and uh, therefore it doesn't actually exist. It's a way of organizing what we do so that we can study, examine, and treat a patient with some kind of a, a model, an outline. So I use restriction, dysfunction, uh, for the manipulative part of what we do. But uh, I was trying to, and MPI, as you know, the model was that you had to know the neurobiological mechanisms of manipulation but you also had to know the biomechanics of joint function, and there could be hypermobility, not just restriction, and you had to know the soft tissue components, the connective tissue components, which are the ligaments, muscles, tendons, and those different things. And all of that, uh, quite often, a patient came with inf inflamed tissues, maybe not just the joint, but somewhere else in the soft tissues. And uh, this was all influenced by uh, what I, I read in Cellier way back when, that uh, the abnormal stress response produced inf inflammation. So what I was saying was that we had to have when we looked at a patient, we had to look at not just the manipulative point of view, not just the neuro, neurobiological mechanisms, and, but also not just the soft tissues, the muscles and ligaments and tendons, and not just the inflammation, which uh, practitioners who give Advil and anti-inflammatories, they're just dealing with the inflammation component. They don't know diddly squat about the biomechanics and the dysfunction of the joints. And uh, then, of course, uh, we have to assess, is our patient in a uh, pathological stress response that is producing a more inflammation to the stress area that's getting inflamed naturally? and. Uh, Quite often, the chronic inflammatory condition is really somebody that's in uh, stress. And really, what I had put together is today is being called the biopsychosocial model. <laughs> right? It's the biopsychosocial model. And uh, I was just saying, hey, let's call this the subluxation complex because we use subluxation in, in the profession. And I thought, I should never have called it that because then Felicia and Reichemann, uh, they were giving uh, courses and uh, they called it the subluxation complex when it was the bone out of place due to degeneration and whatnot and they brought it back to being a synonym for subluxation. Right. Right. So they made it into a thing. Well, it never was a thing. It was always a heuristic model. But little did I know that people didn't understand what heuristic meant. 
So they just read heuristic model, and then heuristic got thrown out, and it became a model, right? Right. And it was subluxation complex, so therefore it must be a thing that you fix. Right. And it never was that. So, and that and subluxation complex is now banned by the World Federation of Chiropractic because they think it's the synonym sure. of subluxation. They don't realize that it was this biopsychosocial model. Mm -hmm. right. Kind of an all-encompassing view of the manipulative lesion, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> could you talk a little bit, Lynn, you know, the one thing that we always have to face our critics on is intertestor reliability with palpation. So, and it's one of those things, for those of us who have been doing it for a while, it, it's a hard thing to explain because it's a skill to be able to feel. So. What's your take on that? I mean, what's your answer when people want to throw stones at us for intertestor reliability? Yeah. Well, I quote Kim Ross's paper, and he proved, uh, I think it was to get his PhD, but I can't remember, and uh, he proved that to be specific with a manipulation was impossible, that uh, they put microphones on the lumbar spine, and they had Gonstead practitioners, really good Merrick adjusters. They had nothing but really good people adjusting the lumbar spine. And you hear one crack with your ear. But the little microphones heard a series of cracks that are almost instantaneous, so we can't discern them as individual. So they came to the conclusion, and I think uh, uh, Stu McGill... McGill and Bresnik were on that paper, yeah. Yeah, we're on that paper. And so they decided that uh, it was just ridiculous that we thought we could move the fifth lumbar, right? or the third lumbar, or whatever. So then I began to realize that even if we can't inter-examiner reliability with our motion palpation, we can certainly get in the ballpark. Well, I think and too, so like the conclusion of that paper, Lynn, was that chiropractors are only um, accurate 50% of the time. What I thought that was a testament to for me, and I love the conclusion of that paper was, the goal is not to get cavitation. The goal is to restore motion. Yeah. So, you know, you can be getting a cavitation. Where the cavitation's coming from isn't so important because the yeah. goal is to restore motion, right? Yeah. So. But the cavitation does tell you that there's more affrontation. Uh, when you don't cavitate the joint and you just mobilize it, uh, Sato in Japan showed that the affrontation back to the brain is much less than when they get a cavitation, mm -hmm. right? Because it gaps more, right? Right, and so it stimulates more mechanoreceptors, and uh, it tells your brain that the, this joint can now move, right? right? So now it can recruit muscles again in the right order. But uh, so getting back to the palpation. As long as we can palpate, and I did some research with uh, two really good palpators, and Scott Haldeman was overseeing it, and uh, one one fellow was six foot four, I was five eleven, and the other guy was five foot six, 
and we used the same palpation stool and the patients sat and uh, it wasn't until after the study was completed that a student came up to me and said, you know, when you bend people over, they go so far and when Bob, who's the six foot four guy, when he bends them over, he hardly moves them over and little guy, he was pulling them way over because he was short. He right. Was, right. So he said, you weren't doing the same thing. Then they discovered, uh, after we started marking the spinuses, that when they're not marked, it's very easy to think you're on L5 spinous or L4 spinous and you're on 3 or, or the sacrum, right? So there were so many problems with the, with the uh, palpation research. Yeah, exactly. And then when Kim came out with his, uh, his paper, I realized that it's not that important that we're exact on L5. Because if we do L4, we're going to get L5. Right. And if we do L3, we're probably going to get 4 and 5, <laughs> plus 2 and 1, right? Right. So uh, my analogy at the time was, do you ever see a micrometer on a building site? You know what a micrometer is? Yeah. An engineer on a lathe meddling, measuring metal is to one one thousandth, right? And the guy on the building site who's got a, a saw that's a sixteenth thick and he's measuring with a ruler and he just gets proximate and that's good enough because there's just going to be drywall over it anyways. It's all going to be hidden. So do we need to be the micrometer palpating the patient? Or do we need to just be a ruler? And obviously, because we all know the clinical outcomes are so much better, that it's good enough to get close enough. Sure. That the secret is, if there's such a thing as a secret, it's to do the manipulation so it restores flexion, extension, lateral bending, lateral bending, P to A rotation and something that's rarely thought of, A to P rotation. That's a teaser for a future question. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? And so if you're just going to a chiropractor that does a lumbar roll, gets some rotation or maybe some lateral flexion that's coupled with it, then uh, you're not going to expect, I hope, to get the same results as somebody that makes sure that it flexes, extends, laterally bends and rotates at that motion unit or in those motion units because the palpation got us close enough. And then you don't have to go cracking up and down because it's what we call a closed kinematic chain of the locomotor system and it has the ability to adapt to its own problems. So quite often what you would be adjusting high above is an adaptation that's going to correct itself. However, if you don't do the restore the function at where that adaptation is coming from, you're going to disturb the adaptation because you haven't restored the function lower down. I in think all too, the directions. that's like a perfect segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which would be um, the delineation between a primary and secondary fixation, which you talk extensively about in, yeah. uh, in your book. So 
Um, the original thought was if we're able to remedy the primary restriction, the secondary restrictions, we don't need to, you know, work on. Unless they have degenerated themselves. Okay. Fatty degeneration, uh, atrophy, uh, ligament shortening, not actively shortening, but because they haven't been asked to be longer, they shorten, right? And so, uh, as you know, in the book, I explain Davis' law. And why Davis' law isn't taught in every chiropractic college, I don't know. But tissues adapt to the stresses that are put on them. So if you have ligaments that don't get taken to their end range all the time, they just shorten. And if you have ligaments that are shortened and you want to treat these people, you have to keep demanding First of all, manipulation and then stretching so that you and exercises so that you get that demand constantly and then they'll lengthen. Right? If that isn't the secret to prognosis and treatment schedules, I don't know what is. Right. And students are being told four or five visits of the patient isn't better send them somewhere else. Well, I mean, I think it's such a good thought. I mean, one of, at the very least, our responsibilities is to make sure our patients have joints that are freely movable in all three planes of motion. I mean, if we just yeah. left it at that, that would be enough probably, you know? Yeah. So the reason we have joints is we're designed to have that motion there. So it's kind of amazing to me that we don't just, that should be what we educate on. You know, yeah. I mean, it make, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. And from it makes a, for great outcomes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. But the hard part is, which it will take us to our next question, you have to take the time to get good at palpation to know, to be able to realize this or be able to feel yeah. this, right? So yeah. can you talk about the struggles, why, you know, in your years of teaching, why people have abandoned uh, dynamic palpation? Uh, like, wh what do you think the reason is? Well, first of all, that it's not connected to manipulation. So in their basic classes they learn manipulation by line of drive which subconsciously makes them think they're pushing a bone superior or headward and they're pushing the bone in rotation and whatnot and uh, so the reason why they need to know how to palpate is never given to them. Mm. Now when I taught uh, the first classes at the Anglo-European Chiropractic College, I explained to them in details the biomechanics of joints and what happens when joints dysfunction, the neurobiological mechanisms that occur, and therefore if you want to center your manipulation where it's going to do the most good, you better learn to palpate. So they used to roll their sleeves up and we spent uh, the first uh, trimester palpating. No adjusting, just palpating. And uh, the palpation would be the end range of passive movement and the translation directions so that uh, 
and I would show them and speak to them about joint play. And so I would have them take their wrists and push and pull, push and pull. Can you feel that movement? Mm -hmm. That's joint play. Would you please do that on your own? <laughs> can't do that. No, you can't do that, <laughs> right? That's, it has to be palpated. And guess what it has to have to change it? You can do exercise all you want, but you'll never go to the end range of joint play or the end range of, until somebody comes along and does this and gets that joint play restored and then you'll have a bigger range of active and passive movement in the joints. It's extremely important in sport. Right. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, we had a discussion at lunch today. We were talking about you know that, that edge of that paraphysiological space or the barrier that Sandoz had originally described. And right. you know the, the, what we were talking about was I had made the point that I think I had made a mistake as an educator early on because I was doing it. But when my students would tell me they couldn't feel it like I could feel it, the trend that I was noticing is that they weren't at end range. So once I started to be able to teach that, they, they really start to grasp that. So I, I think one thing that's happening right now is students and doctors is they're not palpating it in range, which is making it harder to feel. And they're actually not adjusting it in range. They're adjusting it more mid range. And then they're having to use a deeper thrust to get it to that point then, which it'll work. I mean, it'll cavitate joints, but it's not as, it's not as clean as we both know. And I mean, I think we go back to your original premise was we need to impulse, right? I mean, that is what, allows you to be a wrecking ball in one millimeter of a space instead of being yeah. that deep, right? Yeah, HVLA is never never described. Right. It's always HVLA. Yeah. Well, what is high velocity and what is low amplitude? Well, with uh, the new uh, mannequins and uh, force plates and computers, it's been measured now that HV is one two hundred and fiftieth of a millisecond. Right? It's very fast. Mm -hmm. It's that fast. That's not seconds. That's milliseconds. <laughs> Eighty-two <laughs> years old. There. Do you see that speed? <laughs> so, uh, and then what's low amplitude? Well, the joints can gap about an eighth of an inch, mm -hmm. a few millimeters, right? That's amplitude. So if you can gap a joint a few millimeters, it will cavitate. Well, there's discussion now, is it cavitation or is it something else? But it, it'll make a noise, it'll click, right? So anything past that, an inch, an inch and a half, or four inches, six inches, that's going to be too much for the joint. And that's, a, I think, a really important point. In an attempt for people to be fast, they usually then increase the depth. So it ends up being 
uh, high amplitude, yeah. basically, right? So, and then that's the more painful adjustments, the oh, less effective absolutely. adjustments. You sprain the joint a little bit, so it takes the patient two days to get over your adjustment mm -hmm. before you even find out if you've helped. Right. right? Whereas you know as well as I know that you get the joint to the end range now you feel the resistance does it spring a little bit or does it resist so you're not feeling movement it should never have been called motion palpation because it's who the hell named it that <laughs> <laughs> so it should have been called restriction palpation because that's what we're feeling we're feeling that it doesn't move and I've seen papers written by a physiotherapist where he said, it's so ridiculous to think that they can palpate two millimeters of movement. Well, we're not palpating two millimeters of movement. We're calling it that, but we're not doing that. What we're doing is we're feeling, does it restrict or does it have a springy feel? And I used to say, if you squeeze a brick or if you squeeze brie cheese, you're going to identify the blindfolded, you're going to identify the brick from the cheese, right? Because one, one has a little give and the other is, doesn't give. And that's what we're feeling. We're, we're taking it to the end range, we're seeing whether it does have a little jiggle, or does it, is it just like pull, pushing on that wall? Well, I think too, and people try to throw stones at us with, uh, you know, one paper that gets used against us was Kawchuk's paper, but I actually thought that paper reinforced everything that we talk about, which is basically the human hand is capable of feeling big stiffness. And the people they used in that study, there was, they just randomly found these people for the, for the study. You know, it wasn't like they took yeah. Lin Fei or somebody that's been doing this a, a while. Plus, the patient was lying on a table, right? not sitting. So the table produces an upward force mm -hmm. that you're now pushing down against. Uh, whereas when they're sitting here, and I have my arm over, there's, there's the front of them can go as well as the back of them. But when they're lying down, I mean, it's, it's comparing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first rule of, of research. Don't compare apples and oranges. Uh, that conclusion on that paper was just ridiculous. But in a weird, twisted way, I think it actually proved that you can't, even if you took somewhat random people who are in manual therapy, they could yeah. still determine a massive joint blockage. Yeah. And then, like, as your learning curve gets better, obviously you can tell the little nuances yeah. with the palpation. I'm curious, so you've been doing this for a while. You're, uh, we talked at lunch, you're 82 and a half, you said. Um, <laughs> are you still getting better, at Lynn, at palpation? Do you feel like you plateaued throughout your life, or do you feel like, like you just continue to gain more experience with your palpation? Well, I've gained more experience on the application, mm -hmm. but I think I learned to palpate many years ago. Right. And I don't think you can get any better and better, right? But uh, that doesn't mean I'm the best palpator, but I'm at my maximum, that's for sure. And I've been there for a while, but I'm definitely, I've improved with the application. Right. You have been around some greats yourself that we all, you know, have looked up to, these absolute icons in the world of manual therapy. Who really impressed you at their ability? We'll start with palpation and we'll talk then we'll go to manipulation. Who's the the best palpator that 
that you really, really looked up to in, in your life as a, as a mentor? Well, Gilet, obviously. Okay. Yeah, because he taught me how to palpate. And uh, I'm told that Levitt and Yonda were very good at palpation. Levitt especially, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I was with Manel, and uh, he showed me that my version of palpation was a little more strenuous than his, and so he, he palpated with very gentle pressure that I personally can't feel unless I put a little more pressure into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was obviously a great palpator. And uh, you might be surprised by this, but uh, Ted Carrick is a fantastic palpator. He's a good adjuster too. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good. He is. And he can he can feel what's going on. You know what's interesting with in functional neurology, they don't always delineate joint blockage from just like soft tissue restriction. Mm. So this is kind of a debate that rages on amongst my friends is, would we still thrust an impulse on a joint to get a soft tissue effect? Or do you feel like then we kind of leave that for our soft tissue techniques? Do you know the question I'm asking? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll reverse it. Okay. I think that soft tissue people don't accept that ligaments will change according to the stresses on them. And so they're always looking that the connective tissue, uh, tendons, muscles, are the cause. And uh, I think that there are lots of patients, especially if they show degenerative changes of the joint space, then the ligaments, the capsular ligaments, have shortened. And they have to be stressed with manipulation and then stretched specifically. So that if the upper thoracics don't move and your neck can't, excuse me, if the thoracics can't glide when you extend your neck, then you have to give the patient a stretch that makes that move so that those ligaments constantly get a message that they've got to become long, right. long again. So it's not, what I think I hear you saying is it is an awesome added benefit to, to man, uh, manipulation where we have a softening of the soft tissues, but you wouldn't necessarily do manipulation without having joint blockage or restriction below to get a soft tissue effect. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. To me, the soft tissue is the secondary approach. Might be on the first visit, but it's. I have to make sure the joint function is normal or heading towards normal, and then I can deal with the soft tissue. So I have Heller workers here and whatnot, and they go and have massage, and uh, I use. Uh, interferential therapy to reduce the swelling component. I uh, give them uh, supplements that are anti-inflammatory and uh, <clears throat> I'll help them with meditation and things like that so that they de-stress themselves. So, okay, so that would be palpation. Who early on in your life or still to this day blows your mind at their ability to manipulate well? Maybe of some of the big names that, you um, know, you, you? you. No, well, I mean. You're very early, good. Early, how about early on, though, like of the. Corey. 
And uh, well, the people that taught MPI, Peter Gale, Don Campbell, uh, Bruce Weary. We had uh, George DeFranca on our uh, podcast yeah. a couple, and he was great. And I yeah. mean, you you heavily influenced him. Yeah. Well, yeah. people came six, seven times to a motion palpation seminar, MPI seminar, and uh, I wasn't telling them, "Hey, you're great." I was saying, "You're effing idiot." idiot. <laughs> and, uh, you suck. You try be- again. You better get. You know, better get working on this. And the reward is uh, that they became extremely busy. All those guys are really busy. Right? And I, I meet them here, there, and everywhere, and they all come up and they say, I would have quit chiropractic. I just wasn't cut out for that BS. And uh, I learned to palpate, I learned to adjust. I learned to do treatment schedules that are realistic, not four visits and you're better. I mean, what tissues can change in four visits? Yeah, exactly. You can't even change your bicep in four trips to the gym. <laughs> right? might be able yeah. to, you never know. <laughs> and that's easy. Right. right? So uh, it's, a, it's a matter of application. You have to be wanting to be a good palpator. And then you have to be willing to go through the steps where you're, you're ignorant, and then you're consciously competent, and then eventually you get unconsciously competent, right? Yeah, exactly. That's when you're a pro. Right. Right. There's no pros thinking about how they're swinging a golf club. Right. Uh, they're just figuring out where they're going to hit it to. <laughs> how does the present-day chiropractor reconcile the thought of you don't want to be lumped into the chiropractors who just, you know, the whole adage, they kept me coming back. But we all three of us know how important it is we have to stay in these people's life if we truly want to change function. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's a hard concept because the evidence-based world, you know, really is yeah, one of The evidence-based has no evidence, <laughs> right? There's no evidence to show that four visits all the evidence shows with four visits is that people don't get better, right? Right. We can't take headaches and we can't do this and we can't do that because somebody did SMT, and that's not described, in an MSK model, and that's not described. Right? It's worse than the old subluxation. Right. And then you do it four times, whatever the hell it was, and their headaches didn't go away. Well, my experience is for a real severe migraine patient who suffered since teenage, because that's when migraines start, when they're teenage, right? And they come to you, they're 35 or 40 or 50, right? And you're going to tell them in four visits they're going to be better? No, I tell them a couple times a week for six or seven months. And what happens? They get rid of their headaches. <laughs> they right? get better. Because all the tissues have to change. Right? Pain reduction is easy. Tissue change requires a really good doctor trainer. So the question then our listeners are going to hear from you, what do you tell the patient to get them bought into a longer treatment plan than maybe than what they're... Mm-hmm. 
used to or what they're thinking that they're they're going to get. So you've had it for 20 years. What makes you think that I can get you better in four visits? Right? If you'd thought that, you would have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> right. right? But you've waited all this time, and now you're here, and you want me to work a magic trick. And what I'm offering you is you're going to slowly get better instead of slowly getting worse. All right? You have a choice. I'm willing to hang in there until you get rid of your headaches. But I'm not willing to tell you four or five visits because I'll be conning you out of your money. Lynn, you always said too, and it always resonated with me, if you're going to spend all this time to get good at what we're doing, you deserve to earn a professional income, as we say. Could you talk about that thought? I mean, there's stories now of chiropractors literally making $15,000 a year and, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of a bad, the, the trend I guess we see is education's costing more and chiropractors are making less. Yeah. So. It's a bad model, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, In business, that never works out. No, that's right. So uh, when I first came down to the U.S., my practice in Canada, I was in partnership, and we had a 40 by 40 waiting room, right? 1,600 square feet waiting room, right? I think better be full. Most offices aren't that here in the U.S. Right. right? And he was a little busier than I was, and uh, we were treating probably 700 patients a week. Right? And I came down here, and I found out people were seeing 25 or 30 people a day, and maybe two or three days a week, and a couple other days, 10 patients a day. And I thought, what's going on? Don't they get great results? We were seeing, each of us, 16 new patients on average a week. Huh? Why? We had no advertising. Because people came and they got better and they sent their brother and their sister, their guy to work, whatever. And it just went And then I realized, I asked somebody to adjust me, and oh my God, never again. Right? Line up and thrust, right? No idea what they were doing. Right? It was line of drive was how they were taught. And... Uh, so I, I started asking around, and very few, except the really good sales pitching guys, mm -hmm. were making a professional income. And then I found out that a whole lot of people were against the guy making the professional income because he was a con man and he was just doing wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, right? But wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, because it knows nothing specific. If he did a lumbar roll, he probably got four out of the five in one direction. And the coupled motion does lateral flexion with that move. And so and he turned them on the other side, so he got the other. So he was getting most. And then he ran up the thoracics and moved ribs and everything else, and all kinds of bridge techniques and whatnot. And then he took your neck and he went this way and that way. And a lot of them do occipital lifts. 
in the old group. Mm. So they weren't doing that bad a job. And they stuck at it twice or three times a week for two or three months. So they got results. And then all these people came along at colleges and said, hey, they're crooks, because they couldn't do it. <laughs> the irony. So Lynn, we're, we try to ask some tough questions. So what would you call a professional income for a chiropractor these days? If, if you're a student out there, like what, what, do you, what would you expect? In my area here, it's a couple hundred thousand a year. Okay, right? Yeah. If you're in Podunk, Iowa, it's probably eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand. Right. Right. Depending on cost of living and yeah. Right. Right. You can get a really nice house up there for a couple hundred thousand. Whereas here, it starts at five hundred thousand, and that's for a studio. It, the bed comes out of the wall if you don't even have a yeah. bedroom. And I think that's an important point that uh, Mark King is always really like, you know, hit home is we want you to be great chiropractors, but it's also really important that you, you know, you got to make a living at this, right? Yeah. So, and you deserve to be, I always say it's kind of a weird thing about chiropractic is in most professions, if you're great at what you're doing, you would be rewarded the best. Yeah. I mean, look at like a professional athlete or yeah. whatever it might be. And so chiropractic is this weird thing where that's not always the case, you yeah. know, it's just like this weird irony. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Parker introduced that. Mm -hmm. Parker taught uh, people. How the old Parker, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the old Parker. Yeah, the old Parker. And uh, Jim Parker. Mm -hmm. And uh, he. Uh, he rescued the profession because it was upstairs and back rooms and it was, it was a mess in the 50s, right? And he came along and said, hey, there's such a thing as a treatment schedule and you're going to bring them in twice a week or three times a week for three or four months and then twice a week for two months and once a week for three months. and." You just keep doing what you're doing, and things change, right? So people started doing that, and all of a sudden, the local chiropractor in my area started driving a Cadillac, right? And he had silk suits and crocodile shoes and <laughs> everything else. Rolex watch, but... Yeah. <laughs> so he rescued everybody, right? But then people like me came along and said, hey, I don't want to be a salesman. I don't need crocodile shoes. So, uh, but you're getting good results. So why don't we figure out what gives us the good results and let's do that. Let's make the same income as that guy, only let's feel proud of ourselves and have self-actualization where we're super happy, right? And that was why I formed MPI. It was basically to give the profession the uh, self-actualization, it's called. The confidence in themselves that they, re they could be rewarded with a professional income. And it wasn't a con job. Right. Right? And uh, a lot of people picked up on that and did the treatment plans 
uh, got the skills so they were actually delivering a specific adjustment for that specific patient, not Flying 7. And, uh, and as you know, tons of them stayed in the profession, got really high up in their communities, well respected. Uh, look at you. How many chiropractors were with the St. Louis Cardinals? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's fantastic what you've done. So, um, we had a good conversation with uh, Michael Shacklock, and we were talking about how much has neurodynamics changed since he wrote his original book, and he said something really interesting. He said, if it's really good material, it actually doesn't change that much. You know, like the principles will stand yeah. the test of time. Yeah. Uh, in saying that, what do you think about that thought with motion palpation? Because it seems like the research, of course, is going to change, and that can always be refreshing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, we're yeah. still joint playing yeah. relatively the same way. I mean, there's always like little new twists and spins yeah. on things, but. Yeah. I think what's uh, changing is how we achieve a change in the function. It's called technique, right? And I taught uh, certain methods that I'd been taught that adapted to the palpation. And uh, you teach different ways to do the same thing. So that's, that's to me, isn't a change. That's just uh, you're driving a Cadillac and I'm driving a Mercedes, right? And we're just going down the road together. There's two different cars, but the same, same thing. Is it wrong to think of MPI as a technique, do you think, in your opinion? No. It, no, so it should be considered a technique. No, it shouldn't be. shouldn't be. That's, yeah. I, it's a diagnostic procedure exactly. that has a technique connected to it, but uh, I hope you still teach the five components of the subluxation complex so that people know that uh, you can't manipulate manipulation. Um, uh, inflammation, you can't manipulate stress, uh, inflammatory response, you can't manipulate strengthening muscles and lengthening ligaments and whatnot. Uh, so what's happened is, unfortunately, certain people took the MPI courses or my lectures and they said, I'm going to become a rehab specialist and I can make a damn good living at rehab. But I had no idea that they would then say we don't need to manipulate. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. That's ridiculous. Yep. I mean, who introduced Levitt and Yonda and Manel and Jeanette Travell and all these people to chiropractic? I wove it into that subluxation complex, right? Which wasn't a thing, it was just a model. And the model included uh, trigger points. If you don't know about trigger points, you're, you're missing a big chunk of what's out there, mm -hmm. right? But I wasn't saying become a trigger point specialist. I wasn't saying become a massage ART specialist never adjust, uh, that doesn't make sense to me because the brain gets its ad 
afferentation from the movement out of the joints, the mechanoreceptors. And we, when you call them proprioceptors, it's not just the proprioceptors, it's the mechanoreceptors. That's what tells the brain how to use muscles. Proprioception just tells us where we are. Right? But if you want to raise your shoulder to reach in the fridge and your shoulder can't move, you automatically do that. You raise your shoulder, right? Your brain knows that this doesn't work and it just does that and you pick out the, the milk. Speaking of shoulders, Len, um, if even at MPI now, um, like sitting on the board, if we just look at the numbers of people who sign up for seminars, when you go to an extremity course, there's a huge fall off in the amount of participants who will sign up for an extremities course. And I think we all know like how important extremity manipulation is. So maybe could you touch on that for a second? Because I feel like it's, there's, I always say there's only 50 people in the world that are really good at treating the extremities, you know? So why do you think it gets glossed over? What a, you know, and what do we well, need to do to change that? All, they're not taught that the spinal biomechanics are inside a closed kinematic chain of joints. So they're taught that they can treat the spine for a problem in the spine, right? In actual fact, their big toe, their ankle, their knee, the suture tip fib, the hip, SIs, all can influence how their spine is functioning if there's a fault in any of those. So they're whacking away at the spine and maybe leaving a mild to moderate Faber positive hip joint and they're not adjusting the hip. Do you think one of the reasons is because, for example, the hip joint doesn't cavitate like an SI joint does? Do you think that's one of the things that's kept people from adjusting no, certain joints? they no. don't understand why they need it. Right. Right. They don't understand that you can't treat the spine on its own. It's inside a kinematic chain that's closed. That means every joint in that chain is adapting to every other joint in the chain. And if one of the joints well, you know from the shoulder throwing, right? If the clavicle can't rotate, you're going to tear out the innards of the shoulder. Right? The rotator cuff is going to get screwed up. Right? And you can treat that, you can do surgery on it and whatever. There's one orthopedic in town here. Luckily, he does the Dodgers and the Kings and whatever. Altrash? No, Neil, or I no. can't name him, and he he knows that after his surgery, they have to come and and get the the what we call the shoulder girdle, right? The ribs have to move, the scapula has to rotate, the cervicals have to function, the clavicle <coughs> has to rotate. All those things have to happen for a really good healing post-surgically right? and people say to him well I'm gonna go buy 50 chiropractors to get up there yeah he says but they won't do what he does right? so the chiropractic students aren't learning 
that it's the sh they're taught it's in the shoulder, you treat the shoulder. It's in the neck, you treat the neck. It's an orthopedic mindset. Very Western medicine, you know, here's your problem. All treatment has to go there. Yeah. It's a huge problem. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. And that's what stops them. Uh, when I had an associate here, uh, the first time he adjusted somebody's ankle and their neck all freed up, he couldn't believe it. And he said, oh, God, this neck, I just can't. I said, well, what's, look at her other joints. And we, we looked at the ankle and he did manipulations. I said, no, don't touch the neck. See what happens when they come in the next time. And he came running in. He said, Jesus, his neck is starting to move. I said, yeah, it was an adaptation to somewhere else in the kinematic chain. Why isn't that? in the chiropractic colleges, PhDs and all, they still don't talk about the spine being treated as inside a closed kinematic locomotor chain. All right? Not agreed? 100%, yeah. yeah. Did you suffer this, or did you notice the same thing? Did you guys have in the 80s, did you have less people signed up for an extremity course than you did a spine course, no. or not necessarily? No. Um, when people started, I told them there were five seminars, and they have to complete those. If you want to quit, quit after the first one, right? But if, if you really want to follow this through, so I had 12, five 12-hour 12 seminars. And uh, the fifth seminar was practice management. I don't know if you ever knew that. Yeah, I didn't know that because uh, Logan used to have the actual videos from your, or the tapes from your Hawaiian yeah. courses. <laughs> yeah. We got to get that back. We got to get something in Hawaii. Yeah. So. You know, I used to take a hundred families, not just the doctors, their whole families, and we would take over a hotel in Hawaii, one of the islands. We did that five years in a row. I'll bet you you couldn't get 10 to go to Hawaii now. They don't make enough money. Right. right? They're scraping and scratching. You go to a convention and they don't, they don't want to buy you a beer. Right? So uh, getting to some final thoughts here before we do the, the actual hands-on portion. Uh, Mark, Corey, myself, we're trying hard to, to carry on Lynn Fay's legacy. What would you like to see a hundred years from now? Like if, with the chiropractic colleges and, uh, and we call it the contemporary chiropractor, what, what do we need to be doing better as a profession, do you think? Well, I would like to see a chiropractor doing an examination to answer the five components. What are the biomechanical insults? Right. What is the state of the tissues that have to respond? What are the soft connective tissues doing and what needs to be done to them? What do I need to do for the inflammation? And does this patient have an overlay of the psychological stress response? Right. And until chiropractors get a handle on that, they don't deserve to be autonomous. And the way they're going now as rehab specialists that aren't specialists, right, 
They don't do post-surgical rehab. They don't do this and do that. What are they doing? They're trying to reduce pain through exercise, right? Which is fine, but there's tissues that have to be. Yeah, you can combine those together, and that's the gold standard. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what's happening. And people have taken one component of it and turned it into a system and made a living off it. They can't make a living off it practicing it, but they can make a living going around teaching it, right? Do you feel that the chiropractic profession is in danger of being swallowed up by the allopathic model if we don't do Absolutely. things? Absolutely. Right. It is already. Right. Most chiropractic students do not know how to adjust, palpate and adjust. They have no idea where to adjust. I have them come in here, and they drop in, I buy them lunch, and I'll say to them, can you, can you give me an, an adjustment? Okay, what do you want adjusted? I say, well, how do you, do you ask the patient what they want to be adjusted? This isn't a la carte. <laughs> right? And they say, oh no, well, lie down. So now what are you doing? Well, they find a sore spot, right? Taylor, they what do you... no idea. What do you think a young chiropractor would want to ask Lin Fei? You know, it's kind of easier for me because mm -hmm. he's been a big part of, of our lives. So, what about somebody who's heard the Lin Fei stories but haven't really been around him? What, what do you think the younger. Yeah, I'd really like to hear it. Yeah. So, Lin, the question that I would want to ask, and hopefully my young clinicians maybe would want to know too, is. You know, being a young clinician, sometimes it's easy to get sucked into not feeling like you're good enough or, or the process getting kind of a uh, monotonous and stuff like that. How, how do you, how did you as a young clinician get not only better with your hands, but then better at treatment and stuff like that? Like, what were some of the things that you felt like made a big difference in, in well, becoming a master with your hands? I was very lucky. Uh, my first year in practice, I was in a small town in northern Ontario with a really good chiropractic adjuster and uh, no MDs in town that was sober. So we saw everything and anything. <laughs> and uh, if anybody had showed up at the hospital that needed to be x-rayed, we were called and we had to run down to the hospital and take the x-rays, read them, and if there was anything on them of any concern, send them to a radiologist 40 miles away. And uh, then uh, I went to England and I worked in an upper cervical practice and I saw what I didn't want to be. And then I opened up in Southampton and probably the 10th patient was a, a general from World War II that had a 3,000 acre farm and a, a huge big mansion and whatnot. And he came in shuffling and uh, he said, I've just been to an orthopedic and he's told me I'm 84 years old. And I knew that before I went there. <laughs> so he said, uh, what do I expect? And. He said, oh, here I am, and I'm expecting to shoot ducks and geese 
to walk my dogs, and to be mobile again. So I said to him, I'm new graduate. I've been told if I see you twice a week for a year, I can get those joints moving. And I hadn't a clue whether I could or couldn't. But that's what I'd been told, right? So he said, I've got the time and I've got the money. So he Let's stuck go. at it two week, twice a week. At the end of a year, he brought me in two pheasants, two duck, two snipe, two plover. Right? Wow. And he had pictures of him walking. I'm assuming these are birds. <laughs> yeah, they are. Game birds. Oh, Game yeah. birds. Yeah. And they're fast. Sniper, you got to be on them, right? Anyways, he shot them all. And uh, he also had a trout stream where he fished in big brownies. He brought me a few of those. And he then came once a month until he was 99. So he started at 84 and he went to 99 and came in every month. And every year he brought in whatever he was shooting and uh, he stayed mobile and got his arms up and was walking and doing everything. And that taught me that if you stick with and demand movement, that movement will occur. Mm. And then when I bought all the books up at Foyle's bookstore, I came across uh, the continuous passive motion people who wrote a book. Salter was his name. And uh, he showed that motion actually influenced how things heal. And he did experiments. By the way, all of this is in my book. If you really want to understand treatment schedules and how long it takes for things to happen, you have to read this book, wouldn't you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I have book. the references, <coughs> gives you the understanding that you can stay with a patient and it won't let you down because it's the way their body works. I think too, it, it does a good job of kind of telling the history of how this has all evolved. Because like I know the people that follow MPI, sometimes yeah. they're not exactly sure how this is all came yeah. about. So I think it, it's summarized well in your book. And, yeah. Yeah, the book's and, great. Uh, so that's what I'm saying to students. Uh, read the book. You'll see all kinds of examples of treatment schedules for different things. And you just have to look people in the eye and say, hey, uh, somebody that I read that's influenced how I practice. I don't have the experience of doing it, but it can be done. And I know how to do it, I just haven't done it. That's right. And so hang in there. And then they'll say, no, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, yes, I do. Not everybody comes with me, mm -hmm. but uh, the ones that do, it's so true. Davis Law sure. and uh, treatment schedules that demand it. If you don't palpate, you can't get the right demands, mm -hmm. right? Sure. But well, one of the things, and this is kind of echoed, it's your, I'm close to your thought that's kind of been echoed to me through Brett is 
be the hero. Be, be the guy that sticks around long enough to be the hero. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to give your patients time. It's it's going to take time. It's going to not happen, sometimes, so. almost <laughs> all the time, right? That's right. The sometimer is. I don't even think about it. I just treat them two or three times. They're 25 years old. Mm -hmm. They're basketball player or they're doing something. They go to the gym regularly and you get rid of their pain. They don't have any chronic tissue changes. But when you're doing your prognosis and your treatment schedules, you have to decide, are you trying to change tissues? Mm -hmm. If you are, it takes time. Right. Nothing changes in a hurry. Right. Now, if you don't, if you're not trying to change tissues, now you're just down-regulating pain. Mm -hmm. right. Now, there's one thing I would like to talk about, and that is the uh, facilitation of the sympathetic nervous system from mechanical irritation of spinal dysfunction that causes chronic inflammatory sports injuries. They happen as an incident and they're acute, but if the underlying facilitation is there, then you have to do spinal manipulation as well as the treating of the injury to get a good final result. And that's why I was appointed to go to the Olympics. I was the first chiropractor to go to the Canadian Olympics and stay with them for seven weeks. Right? Nobody had ever been appointed before. And the reason was that I was treating where the inflammatory driving force was coming from. And as you know, I relate Bosbaum and Levine in the book as the source for that. Whenever I make a statement, I give a reference. Does it, is it a reference that says a chiropractor did this? No, but it's scientific influence. It's rational that we could be, well, there are researchers working on that right now, but there's 55 papers on low back pain, and there's about three papers on facilitation. Right? Why? I mean, don't we know enough about low back pain to, to deal with it? <laughs> no, we want to continue to fight about how to do it, <laughs> how to treat it. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. it's incredible. Absolutely. Anyways, uh, I think that's what you have to do. You have to have a mentor like him mm -hmm. who can show you that it takes time twice a week. You've got to stick at it. And you have to have the ability to do different things each time they come because what you're treating as a primary, you might have to go to the secondary, which has also changed pathologically. Its tissues have changed, mm -hmm. so now you got to work there and, and you, you work away. Mm -hmm. I think a good thought too is if Lynn Fay is treating people this many times, who the hell am I to think that I'm going to help anybody in <laughs> one or two visits? So uh, that's just like a. a do you know what I call it? Mm. The Jesus Christ syndrome. <laughs> All right? Yep. <laughs> I used to say that at yeah. seminars. Yeah. I said, you know, you come in here thinking you're Jesus Christ and you're supposed to get them better in two or three visits. He did it in one, right? <laughs> but, uh, Leprosy, I mean, of all things. <laughs> that's not the way it works. Right. Yeah? Right. But, right. Uh, 
So, and that's what's killing the profession. We've got too many smart people deciding they want to quit. Mm -hmm. I still hear it all the time. Second, third year, I'm just getting this bullshit. I, I got to quit. Mm -hmm. And then they read this book or they hear a lecture or they come to MPI and they say, oh, now there's something going on. Yeah. Right? Well, I think it's a testament to Len. You're, we were talking on the eleva elevator on the way up, 82 and a half, and you're still going strong in practice. <laughs> you saw a patient while we were here. Uh, you say you're going to 85. I bet you go to 90. So, uh, yeah. So th I think there, there's a game within a game, isn't there? Like yeah. there's just that constant wanting to do it yeah. better, and that's what. Why uh, would you not want to do this? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's I a mean, I, good thought. I had a chiropractor coming in from Midwest in a wheelchair so that I could help him sit in the wheelchair. And a year later, he's walking, driving a truck, seeing patients, and they send him out of the hospital in a wheelchair saying that that's it. Right. That's your life. Why wouldn't story. you want to do that? Right. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to do it with exercise. Right. There was his feet, I've manipulated his feet God knows how many times. They were a mess. And they weren't working. And when I got things working, then his back started to move. The story's in the book, mm -hmm. as you know. Bowel movements started, all kinds of things happened. Well, don't tell me it's MSK only. <laughs> I've been around too long and seen too many people get over things that aren't MSK. Right. And then I ask uh, researchers, would you explain MSK? I mean, we keep reading about it, but nobody's ever described it. What is MSK? Is it when there's radiculitis down the arm? Is it? You don't know either. Multifactorial, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, here we are, we're trying to be MSK evidence-based, and we don't even know the definition of MSK. Right? It's like being subluxation, chasing it around. Right? I don't get it. I really don't get it, and we have such a position in medicine. I'm on a medical team often. It's just the other players don't know it, <laughs> right? <laughs> they yeah. still go to their MD, they still go here, they take their drugs, whatever, but I'm giving them a better quality of life. Right. Right? I'm not saving their life. And if I, I mean, I used to s send letters, and I still do if, if I get permission, but MDs hate it when we get involved, even though we're helping the patient have a better quality of life. What was the quote in your book from uh, Homewood? The only thing that's cured is... Uh, bacon and ham. Bacon and ham. I like that one. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. What a way to, what a way to, uh, to kind of wrap things up. So, Lynn, where, where can they purchase the Chiropractic Odyssey? Yeah, it's now an e-book, uh -huh. and it's at uh, Amazon.com in America, uh -huh. Amazon.ca in Canada, and uh, worldwide, it's in Amazon. Uh, each of the countries have their version of Amazon, mm -hmm. and they can pay in their own currencies. Beautiful. And it's about one quarter of what the paper 
paper book was, mm -hmm. and it was cheap at seventy nine. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, perfect. We'll we'll link in the show notes uh, where yeah. where to purchase these. But and uh, yeah, how a student wouldn't read this that mm -hmm. wants to be a chiropractor? It's definitely a must. Absolutely. Yeah. We I, I read about three fourths of it on the plane here. It's it's a great read, but it's it's. Uh, yeah, it'd be a good one to thumb through every once in a while for sure. Yeah, and so. and the references. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to you got to go and look up the references. Mm -hmm. uh, Salter's work is, if that doesn't prove that motion causes changes in the tissues, mm -hmm. as opposed to a cast, which is good for a fracture, right? But immobility after an injury, the post-traumatic dysfunction. That's disaster, right? And what we do is change that. Absolutely. Well, Lynn, I just have to, to thank you for me for uh, for blazing the trail. I know it wasn't always easy, and uh, yeah. <laughs> lots of stones got cast. But right. uh, we're glad you're here, and we're glad you paved the way for for young clinicians like me to to keep uh, I don't know working in the best profession in the world. So well, I'm honored that you would come and interview me, <laughs> and uh, I hope. Uh, you continue to have every success like you Put had. Your partner. Oh, oh yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, can't yeah. thank you enough, Len. Yeah, can't absolutely. thank you enough. So yeah. right. thank you. Well right. guys, uh, so attached to this too is gonna be uh, we're we're gonna kind of uh, we're gonna do some video portions of this as well. And so I'm not quite sure if I'm gonna turn it into a podcast or if it's just gonna be the videos, but stay tuned. It'll be it'll be in here and so we're gonna uh, let Lynn kinda walk us through what a what a visit looks like and uh, do right. some cool adjustments and uh, we're gonna kinda ask him some more questions about that, some some physical mm -hmm. stuff. So um, anyway, uh, any closing thoughts, Brett? Or? No, that's it. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for right. tuning in. And Len, thanks for letting us uh, disrupt your day. And uh, thanks just, for keep getting, just keep getting good with your hands. Just pay attention with your hands. <laughs> and uh, the better you are with your hands, the better your patients are going to be, right. uh, the more fulfilled you're going to be in every single day. All right. So, all right, guys, thanks.